Welcome to Season 2 of the Medal of Honor Podcast. Your host is U.S. Armed Forces veteran Tiffany Martschink. Tiffany retired after 24 years of honorable service in the Army, most of which was on active duty but also served in the Army Reserves. In addition to serving in her military occupational specialty of religious affairs non-commissioned officer, she also served as an Army recruiter and a senior instructor for advanced individual training. I think, and I think as you kind of look as you talk to folks, I think you're going to find it's, it's my view that the stories are going to change because I think what's happening, we're in a transition. Frankly, this is interesting. I think we're at a transition point in many ways um, of veterans' experiences. And I say that because, you know, for really for 20 years, at least for the last 18 years or so, that we, uh, this generation of veterans has been dominated with, with um, Iraq, Afghanistan, and kind of the, you know, what's been called the global war on terror. Um, and, and there's been this huge kind of public support for the military and veterans. Um, interestingly, historically, that's not the norm in this country. You know, that's a, mm-hmm. so we're at this really unique period of time. And so what I keep telling, particularly younger veterans that I've worked with over time is, you know, yeah, many of them can't remember life before 9-11 in many ways. They were kids. Is that, uh, is it, you know, what, you're in a really unique time. And, um, and, and, and so you've got to be very careful that you don't, you don't project a sense of entitlement, you know, that, that I'm owed these, because the reality, that's not the norm of this country. Whether that's right or wrong is immaterial. The fact is it's a challenge. And so we're at this transition point. I think over the next, you know, short of getting to another big conflict someplace, which I suspect is not likely, at least in the near term, um, the experience of veterans is going to change. You're going to start talking to folks who did, you know, five, six, seven, ten years, whose experience is much different than mine, which was dominated for the last portion of my career tied to, you know, combat operations in, in Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. So. It'll be interesting as you go through that. Interesting, just as one quick piece, I'll stop. Um, what's also happening, I think, is, is you're seeing it with COVID, is the shift toward this appreciation for kind of community servants or first responders or healthcare heroes, whatever you want to call it. That's an interesting dynamic. And, it's, mm-hmm. it, and that one may, in fact, be more enduring than the veterans, simply because, I mean, those folks are, are, responding all the time to issues. And so it's an interesting kind of a shift in dynamic. We may have to, as veterans, I think, kind of review how we fit into the broader kind of tableau of those who serve their communities and nations. So it's an interesting kind of process over the next couple of years. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's true, but I'll even, you know, and I just retired last year. I would tell you that's even changing now because the reality is, you know, it's it's hard to find. Using soldiers as an example, it's hard to find a a, a young E E one to E four, even sometimes E fives who have been deployed anymore because we really haven't had a large. Anyway, I was just saying, I'm, you know, these days you're finding E ones to E fives that uh, are really have not been deployed. It's going to be interesting because it's just you know, that as the as the military moves on, you know, it's it's. Those experiences get they'll get older and older. And you know, I came in. So I'll give you an example. I came in the army and and uh, I was commissioned in the army in 1986. And in those days, there was still an awful lot of uh, Vietnam veterans in uniform, um, but they were older ones. You know, they were kind of late in their careers. Um, but by the early 1990s, it was it was it was hard to find somebody who had combat experience. And then all of a sudden, you know, so essentially, we're now in the kind of recycle that generation where my son, who's a captain in the army. You know, has not been deployed. He's been deployed to Poland and Korea, but he's not been deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. So it's an interesting kind of different dynamic. So anyway, it'll be, it, it just shows the, the veteran experience will evolve over time.
I, I made um, my son is armor. Um, my, I've got a, my my son's a captain. He's an armor captain, but I'm I'm into he grew up in the seventies in many ways. I mean, I, I graduated high school in nineteen eighty one, so my high school time was in the late nineteen seventies, and quite frankly, it was really post Vietnam. And, and the reality was, you know, a whole bunch of things were lingering from Vietnam even as a kid. Um, but I grew up in a relatively conservative town, and and I'd always been kind of interested in the military as a kid. My dad was in the Navy for a few years, and you know, he's so I, anyway. I grew up really thinking I wanted to join the Navy and uh, become a Navy pilot. My dad had been a pilot, so I thought that was kind of cool. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and coming out of high school, I, I knew I wanted to go into the military at that point, but I actually really wanted to go the, into the Navy. Um, and and actually tried to get in the Naval Academy twice and did not succeed either time. So I ended up going to college for a year on a Navy ROTC scholarship, again, focused on the Navy. And it was the second time I applied to Annapolis, the Naval Academy, did not get in. And somebody, I forgot who it was, suggested that I should apply to West Point, another service academy. Uh, I did. I got in. And so my, you know, my route to the Army was somewhat kind of accidental. I didn't, it was not my intended direction. I got into West Point and um, I graduated in West Point and, and went into infantry, but for a bunch of reasons, kind of wanted the challenge. Frankly, wanted to go to Ranger School. That was part of the thing. And that was the best way to go to Ranger School was to join as an infantry officer. Um, and enjoyed it. I mean, I, just, I, I had a great time, and I spent you know 34 years in uniform as a result of that. Um, and uh, you know, and like I said, my oldest son kind of followed me into the army as well, and, and uh, so it's a, it was a great career. And I just retired last year, so that's kind of my history. But my, I'm an accidental soldier. I had, I had originally wanted to go to the, to the Naval Academy. How long were you in? It was about 35 years, about. So I served in active duty 34 years and then four years at West Point. So I've been where I was wearing a uniform for 38 years. Um, I retired uh, last year and my, my retirement day was actually just one October of last year. So I've only been out of the Army technically for about six, seven months now, um, officially retired. Um, but, you know, my career took me all over the, all over the, certainly over the country, really all over the world in many ways. I am. Um, you know, the course of the career, I spent actually 11 years in Hawaii, which was not so bad. Three different tours in Hawaii um, uh, in between the 25th Infantry Division and U.S. Army Pacific. And, and um, so, I, you know, I had an opportunity to command from, uh, you know, platoon level all the way through division level and um, really enjoyed it. I just had a, had a great time. I love soldiers and, and love being around soldiers. Love the I love the energy that soldiers bring to bring to things. Frankly, I love the uh, yeah, just enjoyed the challenge. Frank, I'd always enjoyed the comp competitive aspect of the military. Um, enjoyed the physical aspect of the infantry in particular. Um, and, you know, all that was, I just got satisfaction doing that. So it kept me up for a long time. We actually saw, when I retired last year, I actually retired out of Germany. I did a joke about this. Um, my wife has family in Switzerland. Um, and yet our, our only tour in Europe over the course of my 34 years in the army was my final two years where I was at U.S. Africa Command in Stuttgart. And um, so my wife and I joke, it took us 32 years to get to Europe. Um, we, finished our, we finished our career in Europe and retired out of, uh, out of, out of Europe in the middle of COVID last, last summer. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And now, I'm in, and now here in South Carolina, uh, in Columbia. originally from South Carolina? Nope. I am, um, I, I am, you know, a lot of my, I guess you could define a lot of my, a lot of my career inside an accidental kind of, you know, you know, serendipity. I'm not, I'm actually from Ohio originally. And so is my wife. Although we met, um, we met when I was stationed in New York, she was in New York city and I was upstate New York. We met, um, in New York at the time. Um, but we both grew up in Ohio. I, we wound up here actually. I, when I was retiring, when I was retired, I was trying to decide what I was going to do next. And then, 
And uh, one of my old bosses is the president of the university here uh, at the University of South Carolina. Um, he reached out to me about the, the possibility of coming here and, and directing military affairs for the university. And uh, I know him well and have great respect for him. And, and, um, and my wife and I talked about coming to South Carolina. We were we were oriented on South Carolina, the ge- geographic location, climate and family, you know, close to relatively close to family. Um, but I had never been to Columbia and I had a, I, I kind of a joke. I parachuted into Columbia sight unseen last summer when we arrived here. And, um, and uh, now we're, now we're, we, we've dug in like ticks and we're, 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 we're in Columbia. So that's, I, so no prior history of South Carolina. It's just, uh, it was the right place geographically. The job was the right job. And, uh, and we're, you know, we've been here and we're really enjoying it. I, no, I've been to Fort Jackson a couple of times over the years just to stop by, but never stationed in, in South Carolina. Hawaii, uh, JBLM, Joint Base, Lewis McCord up in Washington State, down at Tampa, stationed there, upstate New York, Fort Benning, um, Fort Leavenworth. I'm forgetting a few places. Hawaii three times, you know, Germany. So all over the place, um, plus deployments. But uh, never, never South Carolina. Um, it was just, it was, but. South Carolina is an attractive place to come if you haven't been here. It's neat, and if you're here, it's great. of course you know you know it's great as you're here. But it was uh, it was really attractive to come there, so we, we were excited about it at the time and, and really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think originally that was it, but I, you know, it, you know, it's interesting when I think for all of us when we were when we transitioned out of the military, and I kind of described it as leaving that industry. That you have a choice, you know. Like the questions, in particular for me, I was fortunate to be a senior officer. I could, I mean, I had I had op- opportunities to do different things. Um, so for me, the, the choice really was, do I stay kind of focused on the, the military industry, if you will, that's kind of moving to defense contractors and that kind of stuff, which are important jobs and, and, and lucrative positions and all that sort of thing, or do something else. I, I was, um, I've never been in higher education. So this is a, you know, I, I, I joked that I really shifted industries. I've moved from the department of defense, which is really, really an industry to higher education, which has its own culture, its own governance um, and so, you know, what attracted me to this here was not necessarily the fact that I had a former boss who was here was, was useful to, to try to orient towards South Carolina, but the idea of moving to higher education was attractive for, for really two reasons. One, um, I just, I like the, I like the challenge of ideas that kind of stimulate higher education, just the, the stimulation of ideas and, and different positions and debate and that kind of stuff. And frankly, you know, uh, Although my position doesn't allow me a huge amount of intersection with students, the reality is students in some ways are kind of proxies for soldiers. I mean, they, they're, they're young, they're energetic. Um, and so keeping around younger people to some degree, I think, fills the same kind of need that I found in the Army about being around soldiers um, for so many years. So that's kind of how we wound up here. And so I've been here about eight months now and, and enjoying, the, enjoying the ride. This is a like a menial, like not a, not really that big of a deal, but like so for the army uniform for the people who li- end up listening to this, um, as an officer on your uniform you have your branch insignia, so for you that would have been infantry, but then when you get promoted to general officer, you don't have that branch insignia. When you got promoted. Did that have any sort of impact? Like I'm losing my branch or my association with my branch? No, I don't think it did. Here's the reason why. I mean, when I was a young officer, branch identification was really important. You know, you're in the infantry, you're in the armor, you're in the artillery, you're in the finance corps, whatever. As you as you serve in more senior position, what I found, particularly as a commander, I started realizing, you know, I mean, I realized it early, but I certainly realized that it got more senior is units are made up of all branches or a variety of branches, not necessarily all. And so the, the branch just provides a specialization of a particular area. And frankly, even in my own career, it became less about the infantry and more about maneuver, which is kind of infantry, armor, even aviation, and then combat arms, you know, which is part of broader and then combat support and combat service support. Um, as a general officer, you know, the term general is an interesting term. It also means in many ways generalist. And so, uh, you know, the idea of being a general officer is that you, 
you have a an appreciation for the general approach to to conflict and, and direction. And so I didn't I didn't see as much. You always identify. I mean, I still identify myself as an infantry officer. That's kind of my basis. Of, I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, but I never felt any longing for that as I got more senior. In fact, what I found interesting, just the opposite, I found the need to challenge to not think just through a combat arms infantry lens and think more about the branches that I hadn't really understood as well. And what I found is, and I think it's applicable to any, any business, um, a leader has to move to the portion of the business that they're least comfortable with. And so for me, growing up as an infantry officer, you know, the, the comfort zone for me was maneuver infantry sort of thing. I kind of, you know, it was all, I appreciate I, in area, well, I wasn't near, wasn't nearly as comfortable as logistics or, or administration. So I had to spend more time in, in even military intelligence, had more, ten, more time in that portion of my organizations to understand what they were doing so I could make better decisions because that's where, my, that's where I was least comfortable. And so I think the paradoxical thing is as you move the leader is, is in your organization is focus on that aspect of the organization where sometimes you are least comfortable because that's the area where your blind spots are. And it's the blind spots that will end up, you know, biting you in the tail end if you're not careful. Um, you know, so particularly in, in combat, that was an area where, you know, understanding what my engineers are doing and what my intelligence folks are doing. Um, and even my, you know, administration folks and, and medical folks, understand what they do in many cases, much more important to me than what my infantry guys are doing, because I understood that world. I kind of had an intuitive appreciation of that where I didn't have that intuition for, um, you know, the technical aspects of military intelligence as an example. I agree with that. That's, you know, so my, with me, when I was in, I was, I was support. So I was not uh, combat. And with that being assigned to a variety of, of types of units, um, I, I was, I went from being, and uh, in, in, I've been in TRADOC units, aviation, military intelligence, medical. Um, uh, I was, my last six years, I was an instructor. Um, I was a recruiter. And I think for me, that was that was almost an automatic um, big picture um, approach because I I didn't I for those like yourself who maybe were in a particular MOS like infantry where that was your vision infantry and everybody else supports me because I'm infantry um, and so I think. I think I was forced, you know, early on to realize, oh, oh, so there is a bigger picture, not just this this slice of the of the military. And later on, I took the um, the joint the joint senior enlisted professional development course, mm-hmm. and that really got into um, even a bigger picture of being inclusive of all branches of the military. Um, the, you know, <coughs> you're looking at the DOD as well as the different branches and all the moving, all the moving pieces. So I really appreciated taking that course, um, to be able to see what things look like stepping outside of it. But, um, yeah. I, you know, I'll take one other thing. So when I came I, you know, I, I was able to command a division, but I commanded not a number division. I commanded a division in First Army. And First Army focused on support to the Guard and the Reserve. And so, you know, as a two years as a division level commander, um, you know, you talk about stretching. I'd spent my entire career, you know, at that point, 30 years plus of my career, really in active Army units. I worked some with the Guard, the Reserve, you know, peripherally, but really by focusing on active duty and active units. So for two years in division level command, I found myself um, commanding active brigades, but supporting guard and reserve units um, across the 27 states and territories east of the Mississippi. It was kind of division east and first army. Uh, I'll tell you, that was hugely stretching because I, you talk about an area you're not comfortable with. I mean, I, I was an active duty guy. I, I, the guard of the reserve was something, I just, you know, peripheral interaction. But then for two years, I had to deep dive into that world and gain a huge appreciation for what our what our guardsmen do and what our Army Reserve soldiers do. Um, 
And that, frankly, was probably, in many cases, much more important than even operating with other branches because when you realize from the Army, it's about the total Army. It's active, guard, reserve. It's COMPO 1, COMPO 2, COMPO 3. Um, I, didn't have an, I didn't have nearly the appreciation. And now in my current job here in South Carolina, I spend actually a fair amount of time working you know, with the South Carolina Army National Guard in particular on, on things. And we've got students that are guardsmen as well. So um, anyway, that, that experience, real senior in my career, was probably, in many cases, you know, I guess the point of the whole thing is you get senior is expanding, you know, being stretched sometimes by choice, sometimes by, by requirement. And I was stretched a couple of times by, in one case, by choice. You know, I kind of oriented on units I wasn't familiar with. But then I'm assigned to an organization I had no experience with. That was kind of by, by direction. And so that forced me to be stretched, which was really, I think, good. And um, I think I, I certainly, I appreciated the experience. And it's maybe better, um, you know, better appreciative of what the, totality of what the army and the and the and the you know the department of defense does i agree it yeah it i mean it's, it's easy to get that tunnel vision um if you're not careful for anybody to to just focus on well this is my piece this is my world i don't care about the rest of it it's easy to kind of have that mindset yeah um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. Go for it. Uh, I, I, no, I was going to say, you know, I think it's also applicable to, if you think about veterans, because, uh, you know, this is a challenge that veterans have, I think, to some degree, particularly those that, um, you know, have been so focused on kind of what their experience in the military is that, because, you, you know, I both know when you, when you leave the military, you know, in many cases, it's, you, you know, it can be like landing on Mars. I mean, you're, you're all of a sudden in a world where, the, the, the culture is different. The governance processes are different. And I'll give you an example. You know, at the University of South Carolina, where I currently work, is a wonderful institution. Um, but it's not a military institution. And, 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 you know, the people that have worked here, the professionals that have been in academ- academia have been doing it for sometimes decades. Um, that's a culture and, a, and a, an experience that I've never had. And they don't understand their, have my experience. So this, uh, recognize when you leave the military, you're going to wind up in, in, in likely in something that's not what you have been doing. And if you only sp- if you only spent three or four or five six years in, in the service, maybe that's not a hard transition to make. But if you're uh, you know if you're in it for thirty some years, it becomes a lot harder. So with that being said, what was the transition like for you? going from decades of the military environment to now that higher education environment, what was that transition like for you? Well, I, I so that transition is still ongoing. So it's not past tense yet. Um, it, 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 it's ongoing in the sense that it, 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 it's a difficult transition to be honest. I mean, it's difficult for a couple of reasons for me. Um, you know, having spent my entire adult life in uniform transitioning away from, that you know that sense of belonging that sense of teamwork that sense of to to be retired and not in that is a, is a, is just difficult in and of itself no matter what i was going to do um coming to higher education where again the, the 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 dynamics the culture is different makes it a little more challenging I, you know so you know and even within higher education as an example what i find is you know there's a there's a difference between the faculty and the staff i'm i'm a staff guy in, in the higher education i'm an administrator um which was necessary function, but the reality is that the product that we provide, education, is generally provided by faculty. And the faculty, of course, have their own, you know, governance processes, the aspect of, you know, you know, uh, academic rank, you know, between associate professors, professors, tenured professors, is very clear in that world. It's a very similar, pro- you know, if you think of it, it's like rank in the military. So when I'm, as a staff guy, as a, as a staff administrator, um, I'm external to that. And so that transition's still ongoing for me um, and trying to figure out, you know, where I can contribute um, by recognizing the different process, the, the, the authorities. I have different authorities here that, you know, the military have had a fair amount of authorities, which are sometimes, you know, very helpful to have. Uh, the decision process, the military command, command is an interesting, you know, commanders exercise authorities like you've, the only you don't have anywhere else. I mean, it's unique to it's unique to the military. It's the legal authority comes with command. Uh, the authorities that come with 
you know, the private sector, even in most cases, the public education sector is much more tied to, um, you know, more collaboration and more you know, use of skills like persuasion and, and those sort of things. So it's an interesting process. I'm still undergoing it. And uh, I'm sure I will be for some time. Yeah, I, I imagine I, I thought about as soon as I asked that, that the that you're still in that transition. And, you know, I, I was in the military for 24 years and got out in May of 2019. I still say that I'm still transitioning because it hasn't been quite 20, uh, two years yet. Um, because it is, it, it's kind of a culture shock when you spend your adult life in a particular environment and now you have to go to a completely different environment where, you know, you can't talk to people the same way that you could while you were in the military. And it's not that it's not that you are rude to people in the military, but that directness and that, hey, go do this and go do it now um, on the civilian side is taken as a, hey, you're rude. You can't talk to me like that. So it really is a different, a different culture and a different world. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think there's there's real truth in, in a lot of that. I, um, you know, for me, the the issue isn't necessarily that isn't just a kind of the the ability of kind of telling people to do enough, but to the the issue really the issue process here is, and I you know I appreciate this in the military, particularly because my my final job was in a, in, a, in, a, in a command that I had you know focused on Africa, which there I didn't have much experience. So I was I was learning a lot there and spent a lot of time with folks from the Department of State and 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 some of the intelligence agencies and and other stuff. So. You know, I was exposed to an aspect of the kind of national security I hadn't been before. So I think I that forced me to try to, you know, the, I think the term that you need to have as you transition, um, I'm learning, and I've learned it before, but I think it's reinforcing, is really this understanding of empathy, is be able to really listen to somebody else saying, to understand their perspective on something, particularly in this change in industries, that becomes even more important because I have a lot more blind spots you know, in the military, the reality is spent 34 years. So, you know, I had a fair amount of intuition built up and kind of understood and can quick, you know, I see so the, the problem confronts me. I've, I've seen this problem before. It's pretty easy to come up with a solution and kind of move forward. Um, where I'm at now, because I don't come from higher education and I'm just trying to, I mean, just the basic issues of terminology and who does what to whom, understanding the role between the bursar, the registrar, um, on the staff side of things, let alone what the various colleges do and the departments. You know, um, how the university conducts research, how funding occurs, all these things are, are new to me. Um, and there's linkages to what I've done before. I mean, that's, that's reason they, you know, so it's, it's not rocket science to make the transition, but it does take some effort and it requires empathy. So I think the term for, for veterans as you transition really is to understand this idea of, uh, I understand other people get different perspectives and they're not necessarily wrong. They're just different. And you got to understand where they're coming from and their culture they're in. That's, that's what I'm, you know, it's being reinforced all the time to be around here. In the military, what was family life like? You mentioned having a son, more than one child. And then what was the impact on your family as you transitioned out? That's a great question. So I think, because I think it's, you know, the military writ large, and particularly the Army, has spent a lot of time focusing on families because they realize, you know, the old expression is you enlist the soldier, you retain a family. And so you, you know, you're not going to keep a soldier in the army. You're not going to keep an officer in the army if the family is not satisfied with the with the, the, the lifestyle. And so, you know, my wife and I were we're coming up for our 30th wedding anniversary this month, just in April here. So, you know, she's figured out to stay with me this whole. I've been in the army for almost five years when I when we were married, and she stuck around for 30 years. I would not have stayed in the army for 30 years, 30 years of marriage had she not thought it was, you know, she didn't like the lifestyle and enjoy it. And I think this applies to any family that's successful. That you, you know, obviously there's sacrifice. You're gone a lot. And maybe to give you an example, I've got you know, a bunch of kids. I have three kids. I have a, I have a, my oldest son is a captain of the army. My daughter is a, a, a nurse in an intensive care unit. And my youngest son has graduated from college this, this, this year. So they all grew up in the military as well. My wife was a nurse and she chose to kind of leave her career because we moved around so much, um, and, and raise the, raise the kids. But you know, I missed my daughter's birth when she was born. I was, I was deployed when she was born. Um, I can't count the number of birthdays that I've missed for whatever reason. It was in, I was, I was deployed for 27 months. 
uh, at one point missed two Christmases, two New Year's in a row for deployment with back to back years. That's hard on any family. And my experience is not unique. In fact, mine are probably less demanding than others. Um, but as long as the family, so, so for us, the, we found, um, we found a, we appreciated being in different places. We, every place we lived, we liked, you know, was, we never, we, we always kind of kind of, we were never in a bad posting. There were some aspects of certain postings were, were better or worse than others, but we never had a bad location. Uh, we just learned to, you know, and, and that was, and Frank, I credit my wife with that. She, she's the, she's the one that kind of kept us going. She's only that. Got him. And so I think that the transition, you know, for us, the, the interesting thing for us is our, we, our kids had kind of moved out of the, out of the house before we retired. So we kind of gone through the empty desk syndrome between, you know, Son in the army getting married, daughter in her own profession, youngest son away for college. Um, before I retired, so when we retired, it was really just my wife and I. The kids are kind of off on their own things, so they've made their own transitions into their own piece. So, so it, it works. And she and I are still kind of going through the transition together. She's trying to find she too. The spouse has got to kind of figure out how do you fill that void. In her case, she was so involved in the military with family support issues and the unit and that sort of. Thing. So she's had to translate that here to issues of she, she volunteers at the USO, she's volunteering at COVID vaccination sites, you know, those sort of things. So, so I think that is you got to fill that void somehow in your new space, and our new space is you know different space, but it requires that kind of so for for both of us. That's helped I think her transition as well as mine. No, that's, I think it's fair. It, it, in our case, maybe a little bit, um, you know, my, our, our two oldest kids are, have been, you know, both out of college now for, for several years and kind of off on their own. So that was a few years ago. Our youngest son actually, um, you know, he's actually been in the house longer, you think, because he, for high school, he went to a boarding school. He, you know, because, you know, his, his two, his two siblings moved during high school a couple of times. So he didn't want to do that. So he actually chose to go to a, to a boarding school. And so he was actually out of the house through high school as well. So he's been kind of, you know, coming home on vacation for years, but really hasn't been a full-time, um, you know, home occupier for, for a number of years. So I think we may have made that, that transition of kind of moving the kids out to other worlds earlier than others. Um, but you know, they're, they still recognize the transition. So they, they just, they're, they've just been a little more independent about it and, and, you know, and, and frankly, they're still, what's really, what's really cool for them is they're, they're still, their best friends in the, in the, in the world are the ones who came up, you know, through the military that they were friends with. My, my son's wife was my daughter's best friend and she was in a military family. So my daughter-in-law is okay. a military brat who, who was best friends with my daughter before my son started dating her. Um, <laughs> and now they've been married for two years. And so it just, you know, this is a, this is a tightly woven web of, you know, our, our military community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we were very lucky. Our, our, our son and his wife were, uh, you know, they're, they, again, they, they, you know, they both grew up as in the military as kids. Um, and now that they're married, of course, they're very common. You know, they understand the, they understand the culture, the environment really well. It's, so, it's, um, and, and it also helps we're close friends with her parents too. So it's, 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 you know, it's useful as well. So there's, um, so it's, it's, it's kind of neat. It's, it's, I think some uniqueness about the culture that comes with the, uh, with the military. So you're one big happy military civilian family. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you know there's always a little dysfunctionality in every family, so I expect we have ours yeah. as well. But that's uh, but yeah, we we've been we've been we were very satisfied. We were very fortunate with our experiences. But you know, frankly, to my wife's credit, she's always been the optimistic one. So mm -hmm. you know, optimism is a optimism is a, is a a necessary quality to deal with adversity and she's been very, very optimistic through the year, probably more so than I. So it's been a, you know, that she jokes and says the old, you know, happy wife, happy life kind of thing. So that's, so there's, yeah. there's, probably some truth, there's probably some truth in that. Yep. Oh, we women, we have a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was reading an article, um, at, at, USC, or, you know, I, and I'm sorry, I know, I actually was working a temp job at a law firm when there was that battle between Southern California and South Carolina as to who is the original USC. Right. But being from South Carolina originally, 
it's hard for me to break that habit of saying USC. Um, just because it's what I grew up calling South Carolina. But um, I, uh, I was reading an article recently where you had, you had, there was a quote, and I need to look it up uh, right quick, like, um, but this quote um, was you, so you, you might eat your words. No, I'm kidding. Um, mm. It wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't bad at all. Um, oh, goodness. Where did it go? I wish I already had it pulled up so I could see it. Okay. Um, so this quote, you said, um, oh, come on. You says that, it says, I've found that relationships matter. Yeah. I've found that relationships matter and the relationships that matter most are based on character. What I've learned is character counts and trust is foundational. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and where that came from? Yeah, well, yeah, that's so. The, the quote actually is from an interview that was done when I arrived at the university here, um, and they did a kind of little you know, introduction piece on me to, to, for some of the just for the staff and faculty. Um, yeah, you know, I think there's what I've learned over the years is that the, the reality is it, it, it's it's really just the issue between character and competence. So you know, there's a lot of folks that focus on your 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 ability of doing a job, your competence to do something. Um, and in the military as well, you know, if you're a good infantryman or a good, a good artillery officer or in, in a great admin and specialist says, listen, that's, that's competence. That's important. But what you can train competence, um, competence that can be, you can educate, you can train someone to be talented at something, you know, as long really what's more foundational that though is character. I mean, this issue of, of what's at your soul? What are your, what are your values? And, you know, the, the army has a really good job of kind of the, the seven army values, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honesty, integrity, personal courage. These are army values. They're, they're kind of, you know, we've been dealing for years. Um, character is more important than competence because if, if it, character gets the issue of your ability to trust in other people and the beauty about the military, at least what I've found is, you know, because it's such a cultural norm to the military, trust is something that you, that, in fact, in many ways, I always said trust is assumed in the military. You have to, you know, I, I will trust you because I know you're a soldier or you're a sailor, an airman or Marine. I know your background. I trust you. And so what you do is important. And obviously take that to the extreme and, and you know, in combat, then when lives are on the line, it becomes, that becomes critical. But that's all based on this issue of character. And I think the, and that's the, what I've learned is the reason relationships are important because relationships are, relationships are the vehicle by which you understand character. And, and if you can, you can get to the heart of someone's character, you can then determine, can they, can they be trusted? And in the military, because of our training and our background, I think we, we peel back the, we stretch back the, the, the kind of the veneers, the, the onion skins, if you will, to find the, the soul of your character. And that's really important. That's a little harder in the, on the, in the private sector, I think. Um, because the experience don't do that. So I, I think, yes, yeah, so I think character, competence, trust are all kind of at the piece. But if you have to, if they layer them out, um, I'd say character before competence every day of the week and Sunday as well. You know, it's, uh, that I can, I can make you competent. I have a much more difficult time if you don't have, if you got character flaws. That's a harder thing to, to deal with. I, I, I like that. Um, I do. And I, and I think I like part of me says I like it because of having that military background. So I, I totally get where you're coming from and those, and those army values. Um, the last couple of questions that I have are now maybe more focused on the listeners. And that is, um, what would you tell what would you tell the people listening who are currently serving in the military um, who are contemplating getting out of the military and what you know, like what would what advice would you offer them um yeah so I, I, that's a great great question I, yeah i mean i think the 
you know, first of all, if, if, if you're serving today um, and you're contemplating getting out of the military, make sure you're make sure you're making the decision to leave the military for the right reasons. For me, the right reason was I mean, I spent my entire life on it was it was time for for me to move on to something else. Um, you know, so I have spent a career doing it. But if you're a young um, mid-grade enlisted soldier or sailor or marine and making the decision to get out. First of all, make the decision to, for, for the right reasons. You know, what, what are you, are you leaving the military or are you, or are you moving to something, a better opportunity? So understand what your piece. Something I learned when I was, when I was contemplating retirement was, you know, when you leave the military, there's three things you gotta kind of, you gotta contemplate. Um, you gotta figure out, you know, and they, and these are, it's kind of a triangle that balances out. There's an issue of location. You know, where do you want to be? There's an issue of kind of vocation or passion. What do you want to do? And then there's this issue of compensation, you know, how much you need to make. And and the reality is if you there's trades in each of those spaces. So if you decide, you know, hey, I'm coming to South Carolina and I'm I'm not going anywhere else, I'm coming to South Carolina, you're gonna to have to make some trades potentially in compensation, even what jobs you do, because you're saying I'm gonna focus on location. Um, alternatively you say, hey, I just want to make a lot of money. I want to make as much money as possible. I'm open to going anywhere and doing anything. Then those other, those other two aspects change. So my, my thought for someone's leaving the military is put some thought into this issue of location, you know, compensation and vocation or passion and decide, you know, how do you want to balance those three? And that will help you figure out where you want to be and what you want to do and how much, frankly, you're, you're, you're willing to take, to make, to do that. Um, so I think those are, that's what I, that's the kind of advice I would give somebody who's contemplating departing. That's good. I wish I had that advice before I exited the military um, because it is good. Uh, yeah, there's knowing ha knowing what your goals are and having a plan to execute those goals um, is important. Yeah. Um, so now that you are out of the military and yes, like you mentioned before, transitioning, what are you learning? What are some lessons that you're learning now um, that you're on the civilian side um, that you didn't expect? Um, that's, that's a good question. I, you know, first of all, the things I did expect, I, I mean, I knew, you know, the skills that I learned in the military about leading organizations, or how organizations operate, understanding people, it, those apply to the civilian side. Well, the language is different. Um, you know, the, the uniform is different. I mean, now we're a, a Often are wear a suit and tie than a than a uniform, um, so those kind of things apply. I I think the the the, the things that I'm still learning that are different um, in many cases. Sometimes the pace and tempo is different. There's aspects, or you know, my current job. There's aspects where things work really fast. That's very familiar to me. But there's also pieces where the you know the process seems much more elongated than I'm used to in the military. And and the, the military again, because the role of commanders. Sometimes decision processes in the military are, are, are sometimes truncated, uh, because, you know, eventually it comes down to usually, not all the time, but normally a commander makes a decision and then the organization executes that decision. Everybody kind of salutes and, 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 and moves on. What I'm finding in this environment is that that's not always the case. The president of the university just doesn't decree decisions for the university. There's a board of trustees. There's, 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 you know, folks in the cabinet. There's a variety of folks involved in that process. That's not totally dissimilar to the military, but it's a little bit different process. So I'm still learning to operate in that space. Um, and a, it, it you know, requires a different kind of perspective on time, how decisions are made, when decisions are made, um, and, and how, you know, different, um, aspects be, you know, different, uh, different elements be heard in that decision process. So those are all kind of learning, learning points I'm still going through. And I think that's probably applicable to most, most transitions for people moving, at least for kind of guys like me coming out from, organizational level leadership roles to, to, to new positions in, in, in the private and public sector. So that MDMP is kind of out the window. Uh, well, you know, actually it doesn't, it just, the language changes. You know, the, the reality is you're still going through mission analysis. You're still going through course of action development. You're still going through course of action analysis and making a decision. It's just that the language that, you know, the way it is, is, is very common. As, as, as you get more senior in any organization, what I would submit is that, um, often it's not the, it's usually asking what, what question you want to ask, not, not what answer you want to give. The question is identifying what is the problem? You know, what, what am I trying to solve here? And, 
in an organization that's complex, that's sometimes difficult to narrow down what problem I'm trying to solve. If you couple down comp, if you link complex problems to new organizations or new cultures, kind of that I'm in right now, that that requires you to to think a lot more about MDMP. It's just it's just a different problem solving process. So, um, and I suspect, in fact, I know they teach the they teach the MDMP with a different set of terms at the Harvard Business School, um, but it's exactly the same thing. Identify the problem, identify solutions to solve the problem, analyze the solutions, and then make a decision and move on. Um, and we're doing that here as well, here at the university. See, you learn something every day. It is amazing, isn't it? It is uh, old, yeah. do- old dogs and new tricks kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Great. Um, so, so another question that I would ask um, is just, a, just for the sake of getting your take on this, uh, with with the previous episodes that I have recorded, I have seen a couple of common themes uh, with people, and this is uh, people across all branches. Uh, you know, I think I've only had one or two people who have been in the National Guard, but it's definitely been made up of active duty and reserve and all branches, to include Coast Guard, that I've had on. And one of the, well, not one, two or three of the common themes that I've noticed has been difficulty in transition and then mental health issues. And with the mental health issues, those issues being um, kind of two perspectives of one, you know, not wanting to ask for help because there's that still that mindset of, um, I'm a soldier, sailor, Marine, um, who, uh, spent time saying, I've got this. I can handle this and having to learn, okay, maybe I don't have this. Uh, so there's been difficulties with mental health and asking for help and just the difficulties that come with it. And then the third piece is there's been a number of people who have either contemplated suicide or, um, did attempt suicide. Um, what, you know, were any of those things, the, you know, the transition difficulties, mental health issues, um, the impact of suicide, did any of those things impact you while in or now on the civilian side? So, you know, there's a, so the issue of mental health is, yeah, we all, we both, I think everybody, yeah, I mean, you, in my experience, you, you can't be, in, and using my personal, you can't be deployed for combat for 27 months and see some of the things you just see in this without being affected by that. And so I, I went through that process. I think when I when I came back from a couple of different deployments, um, yeah, you know, it was probably some aspect of post traumatic stress. That, and you know, I was fortunate. I think because I spent so long in those, I, I actually think I developed some coping skills that were helpful. Some you know we call them resilience now in the, in the army in particular. Um, but I think the, the issue of suicide one that did affect me personally, but it's affected me indirectly because what I'm finding, unfortunately, is I've had you know there there are, there are, um, there happens to be all men that I've served with that uh, there, there are several that have committed suicide that I've known. In fact, I there's a name of one particular I keep at my desk um, because he reached out to me when I was on active duty about a year before I retired, and and, um, and we had some conversations and some texting back and forth on a couple issues, and he asked for some help. I provided some help. Um, and then find out, you know, several months later, he tragically killed himself. And I, you know, I, so I continue to ask myself, did I miss something in that piece? And it turns out others I've getting in communication with from my unit, um, who knew him felt similar. They, you know, that he was, he was probably reaching out, struggling a bit, and we, we all kind of missed it. So the issue of suicide is real. It's, it's really real when it, that affects somebody you intersect. And this, 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 Soldier was not a guy I was personally close with, but he worked. He worked with me, and I and I knew him. We we served together, um, and you know, so you know, he obviously he couldn't deal with his demons, and, and that's a tragedy. And, and a, you know, I think all all of us will always wonder, did we miss something we should have done more at the time, and you know, and not so. I, I think a lot of veterans deal with that issue. And, you know, the, the you know, you hear the statistic of 22 veterans a day commit suicide. I. I don't know the validity of that number. I suspect it's probably true. It may be higher, maybe a little bit lower, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, veterans continue to commit suicide at a, probably at a rate that's higher than their civilian counterparts. So this issue of mental health, um, 
it will continue to be real. And I think you know, I'm, I'm certainly conscious of it now in retirement. Um, and, you know, it's just, it'll continue to be an area of, of focus and particular for those that I've that influence. I'm fortunate. I think social media has been good because it keeps us all connected now. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've got a lot of connections with soldiers that I've dealt with over the years. And, um, and, you know, I'm hopeful that, of course, the next young man or young woman that I ran into that reaches out, well, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, see more, more behind the, behind the curtain. So. Unfortunately, I can relate to that, to that story of, um, interacting with somebody and then later on finding out that, uh, they're no longer with us because of suicide and just asking myself those questions of, could I have said something differently? Could I have done something differently? And, um, if so, what? And one of the things that, because I, that it had really, it really hit me hard. And so one of the things that I had to finally realize is I'm sure that there's more that I could have done, but at the end of the day, um, it's, it's a decision that that person made. And I'm not, um, by any means, belittling the person but um it, uh, it is definitely it is definitely something that um that needs attention and people need to you know go after that help when they need it yeah i know i think you're absolutely right Tiffany, and i am uh and i'm always kind of yeah i think that's i think we just all have to be conscious it's, it's been present before for other conflicts and stuff but we're, we're you know we the beauty now is we're, we're much more interconnected than we were Perhaps the past with the way that's kind of, you know, reaching out in, in new ways. So it's, um, yeah, someone just has to see. But I appreciate the line of question on it. It's really, I think it's an important one. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you and have a nice day.